Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It is one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. We are the program about all things wet and salty, everything to do with the seas, coasts, oceans of the world. My name is Bron Burton and joining me on Skype is... Kate Mills. Hey. How are you, Bron? Good, Kate. How are you doing? Yeah, look, it's a bit of a roller coaster ride at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. I am... Um had that realisation yesterday that not all wet and salty places are created equal because there's a few that I, I'm unable to get to at the moment that I'm missing quite a lot. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there feeling much the same at the moment. That's right. Hey, let's hang on to the fact that this is temporary and uh, and we'll get to the other side of this. I think that's that's something I have to keep reminding myself of as well. But um, I saw a, a post on Facebook the other day, someone was calling it the Corona Coaster, and I thought that's a really good way of describing it. <laughs> Certainly spoke to me. You know, one minute you're, you're at home making sourdough and, um, you know, trying to make bespoke face masks and the next minute you're crying into your wine. So anyway, I thought that was a really good description of it. And then it has that double meaning of the coast. So yeah. Corona's keeping us from the coast for some of us. It yes. is, it is. And others are just coasting along. Look, I could keep on going. Yes. But hey, I won't. Let's thank Tim very much for our vital bits both today and yesterday. We had a call here actually from a very happy Triple R listener saying thank you very much, Tim, for some sensational radio. So uh, thanks to you for calling in too. Um, those calls help actually because uh, they really do um, mean a lot to us. Um, thank you to Andrew for Soulful Bits, Retro Andrew. And thanks to Peter Joseph Head for Songs in Translation. It was a magnificent uh, vital bits this morning. You, of course, can catch Tim next Saturday and Sunday from 6 till 9am. On our program today, we're shortly going to be joined by Neil Blake. I think for the first time we're actually going to get Neil on Skype, Cade. So this is a, this is a big step forward for Neil and for us. Captain Trash is, you know, technologically literate. He's, he's hip, old, <laughs> hip dude. I wouldn't say old, hip dude. It's awesome. So looking forward to catching up with Neil. He'll be reporting on the Street to Bay's Project Scouts. I don't know if you remember, um, I think it was the year before last, we had some great people from Street to Bay in studio talking to them about their great work. So Project Scouts plus his push and their push for state and local government support for their hard work in reducing plastic pollution on our streets and ultimately the sea. We are gonna, we've got a bit of news to catch up on. We've had a bit of correspondence this week, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Then um, we're going to be speaking with Sean Doherty, which is very exciting. Last year, you may remember, we had Sean on the program a lot talking about the Great Australian Bite with the Fight for the Bite campaign, which was uh, ultimately successful uh, in ending the proposal and push to do deep sea drilling in the Great Australian Bite or more deep sea drilling. Um, Sean's recently become the president of Surfrider Foundation Australia, and he's also published a fantastic book about the history of Australian surfing called Golden Days. It's absolutely, it's just a great book. I've got it in front of me. I was reading it yesterday. Uh, so we're going to talk to Sean about both of those things, but um, but particularly about this book because it's really fabulous. Then we are 
going to be speaking with Mel Wells. So there's something for everyone in today's show. She's a current PhD candidate, but she's been um, working and researching seabirds on Macquarie Island for 10 years. And uh, she's recently returned from, get this, Kate, 22 months living on sub-Antarctic Macquarie Island Nature Reserve, um, researching spectacular seabirds that call Macquarie Island home. So we're going to talk to Mel about what that experience was like. You know, a lot of us are finding it hard and understandably so. So, you know, with this change in our lifestyles and um, being restricted in activities, but imagine spending 22 months on an island in the sub-Antarctic because that's what Mel's done. So we'll talk to her about her experiences and her research uh, and what she has planned uh, for this coming Tuesday's session of the Speaker Tent. This is part of Coast Care Victoria and Parks Victoria's Winter by the Sea program, which anyone can enjoy. and they're being recorded. You can actually catch them up after afterwards if you're not able to catch them live. So we'll speak with Mel about all those things. So big show coming up. Um, Cade, I'm hoping you might have a bit of a weather forecast for us. I certainly do. I'd actually be interested to hear what Mel has to say about surviving ISO life, given 22 months of it. She must be at like the top of her game. Um, yeah, absolutely. But anyway, oh, <laughs> Onto the weather. So, look, it's going to be cold today, top of 11. It's, this is going to be one of the coldest days of the week. And as I'm sure most people, if they've looked out the window, they've seen there's a bit of a fog sitting around, which is a blessing and a curse for some. Um, one thing that's quite good about it, it means there's not much wind. So for anyone that does have access to the water, I was down on the bay yesterday and it was like a sheet of glass in the morning. It was absolutely spectacular and I've seen a lot of photos. So if you do have access to the coast, get down there and make the most of it because that lack of wind keeps it nice and warm. So today, top of 11, there's going to be a little bit of rain on Monday and 14 and then it's pretty much going to be nice weather for the rest of the week with like the lowest overnight being 5 degrees and a top of 17 next Saturday so got some pretty mild weather and as I said we've got pretty light winds for the week so really good time if you do have access to the coast to get down there and the tides today at Point Lonsdale we've got a low at about 9.18 so in about 10 minutes and then we've got a high this afternoon at about 4.14 and I believe there's a couple of foot of surf and with this lack of wind I think just about anywhere that gets a bit of swell be a nice spot for those that have access so get out there and enjoy it. Excellent thanks Kate. Uh, I've got a couple of quick bits of um, news. One is we've actually, I've just had a text message from uh, Andrew Hunter from the Cuttlefish Alliance in South Australia. Andrew was on the program a couple of weeks ago, just giving us an update on their campaign to, um, I guess, bring back some protection for the giant Australian cuttlefish in Wyala. So he has said that uh, they've now got one of the Wyala councillors and their economic development officer on the Cuttlefish Alliance advisory group uh, following a meeting this week, which is really great news, having council support and uh, and on board there. Uh, he said they also had an increase in Facebook followers after he was on our program. So that's good that that brought some attention to what they're trying to do. So we'll catch up with Andrew in uh, a few weeks, um, maybe post-Radiothon, and uh, talk to him more about this campaign because this is going to be a long one for him. Uh, Have you got anything there, Kate? No, I'm going to save mine for our local news after we have a chat to Neil because we're sticking to a tight deadline because we've got so many... Awesome people to talk to this morning. Yeah, we do. All right, uh, just a couple of quick ones then from me and then we'll go to a track. Um, this is more correspondence coming through our Facebook page. You can send us a message anytime via our Facebook page just through the Messenger um, 
uh, option there. Uh, from Rob, who Rob and his dog Spike. So Rob's contacted us a few times about various things that he's seen. At one point, he was out on his stand-up paddleboard and and saw the dolphins in the northern part of the bay. So, um, but this one's from Malacuta, and uh, he saw a sunfish washed up near Malacuta at Tip Beach. Um, interesting one, Kate, because um, we spoke about sunfish on the program um, earlier this year and um, Rob said that this one's just washed up. They don't really know what's happened. I wondered whether maybe it was boat strike, although I know there's been decreased boating activity. Um, do you know much about sunfish? I personally don't know much, but I did see this. It actually interesting sort of sequence of events. I have a feeling either him or someone else spotted it, took a photo. It went up on iNaturalist to try and identify it. Uh, Di Bray from the museum saw it there, so got in touch with someone from Malacuta to go out and get a genetic sample, so take a tissue sample. So someone went out and did that all within the space of one tide so that they can actually work out what sunfish it is. So that's sort of, one, the power of social media, but also, you know, using, like, platforms such as Design Naturalist to report your sightings. People are there watching it and are interested in what they find. So, yeah, so there'd probably be more to come from this, and we should get in touch with Di to find out some more. Yeah, excellent. Let's talk to the experts because we have access to them. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful, the power of community and what we can do, that whole kind of relay, you know, passing the baton to the next person to the next person and actually achieving some really good stuff. So that's awesome. Thanks, Rob, for letting us know. Uh, and one from Colleen um, who contacted us a couple of weeks ago letting us know about a campaign to get plastic stem cotton buds off our shelves. Um, I know Farms talked about that quite a bit on this program. So there is a petition on change.org pretty easy to find um, change.org slash better buds b-u-d-s so thanks colleen for letting us know about that one hey it is i'm looking at three different clocks here <laughs> i think it's around 9 15 yes it is and you're listening to radio marinara here on three triple r i'm hoping at this point we can cross to neil blake who i apparently we're having some trouble catching oh, kent's in another studio what's happening kent yeah not having any luck with uh skype or with his mobile at the moment all right while we, um, what was that, Kate? Uh, Neil must be out there. He must have heard the weather forecast and thought, well, I'm, I'm heading down the beach. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, how about instead of having a chat to Neil, we go to a um, piece of news that you were saving for our 925 spot? Yeah, look, that's a great idea. So this is just a bit of research. This could be a whole segment if I wanted to, but I thought I'd do it quickly. Is a bit of research from a group called the globalfinprint.org. So you can look them up, and it's a bunch of scientists from around the world that are banded together to study sharks and rays and other marine life on coral reefs. Now, they've just... <clears throat> excuse me, published some work in Nature, which as most listeners probably know is, you know, one of the top journals out there. And I recommend everyone to go and have a quick look. And it's looking at the global status and conservation potential of reef sharks. And so this is all through coral reefs. Now, this work is incredible in that it involved 125 authors across 58 nations, 371 coral reefs, and over 15,000 baited underwater videos and so a quick rundown of what a baited underwater video is is that you get a video put some bait in front of it like dangle it off a pole drop it down to the seabed and you record what comes in and interacts with that bait and given that sharks do quite like a feed they tend to come in and interact so this was done over three years um at all these locations so an incredible amount of coordination to get this done every, every baited video is set up the same and so what it gives us is a a well, standardised population across all these reefs because often they're trying to work with different sort of bits of data to get an idea across the world of what's happening. This is using the same technique everywhere. And so what they found is that there were no 
sharks on 69 of the reefs, which is almost 20%. So by no sharks, they might have had one turn up sort of over time. And basically, there, there were six nations where the sharks were completely absent. So large areas of reef where there wasn't a single shark sort of sighted, or if there was, it was like, I think it was three sharks out of 800 sort of drops there. Um, but it's not all bad news. Some of that, I guess, was to be expected, and they can link that to various factors. But the good news, I guess, to come out of it was that things like shark sanctuaries, closed areas, catch limits, the absence of gill nets and long lining are actually associated with um increases of sharks so there are sort of things where there's good management and there's good conservation around the sharks the populations can actually recover or instill in reasonable densities so it's basically we've now got this amazing knowledge base across the world and they can use that as a baseline to start restoring these populations and you were talking about andrew with the cuttlefish over in south australia and i think similar things happening here with the spider crabs is unfortunately things can be related everything can be related back to money and their worth and so for a lot of these locations sharks are worth more in the water for divers and tourists and people to go to see them such as the cuttlefish and the spider crab so increasingly that's starting to help with saving these things it's an unfortunate thing but that's just the way the world works um, in getting some of this stuff over the line it's uh it's pretty amazing what uh, what we're able to actually achieve with this and it's really i think something that we can be really uh proud of here in terms of the great work that we have done to conserve our sharks um i've got another really good piece of news i think we're about to get neil <laughs> kent's been doing so much stuff behind the scenes trying to catch neil and uh, i think this one's my bad i think i wrote his mobile number down wrong so sorry kent um <laughs> Uh, yes. So uh, this one came via Sarah Carroll um, and we've been hearing a lot of um, good, good news stories about some of the positive impacts of just quite a human activity um, during the last few months. And one is uh, to do with some greater, um, some quieter oceans. Um, uh, we got Neil. I'm going to save this one. Um, this is to do with whale activity and, and whales sort of benefiting from having quieter oceans. But given that we've got Neil on the line, let's go straight to Neil. Good morning, Neil. Hey, how are you going, Brian? Yeah, good, thanks. Good. How are you? Good to speak. I'm very well. I'm glad we finally caught up with you. We tried Skype. It didn't quite work, but um, we finally got you on your mobile. Um, yeah. Let's launch straight into it. So Street to Bay's Project Scouts. Tell us what's been going on there. Well, uh, yeah, as you recall, it is a, um, a Port Phillip Bay funded project. So it's been uh, two years uh, progressing to this point, and uh, so there's been 25 scout groups uh, in about five catchments around the bay that have been doing street litter audits since uh, yeah, yeah, February, I think it was in uh, 2018. So, um, and they've audited 128 different sites uh, of different street usages. So we've got the retail sites industrial sites, public buildings, sports grounds, parks and residential ordered areas. And in each of those, they've collected and categorised litter and particularly plastic pollution, including microplastics, in three zones. Uh, that's the paved area, the footpath, or the garden and mulch areas, or nature strips, and uh, curb and gutter. So it's been a really comprehensive uh, survey, right in, as I say, right around the bay from uh, Ballerine down to Mornington Peninsula, uh, and it's uh, really interesting to see the results. And it's work that's so important too, isn't it, Neil? And it's it's ongoing. This sort of this sort of uh, problem that we have isn't going away in the short term. 
No, that's right. And, and one thing that's key about this is that uh, it's very much about data collection as opposed to cleaning up and, and collecting a bit of data. Uh, so um, the actual audit areas are very closely defined and, and measurable so that we can calculate the number of items per square metre or as the scouts have been doing it, per 100 square metres, uh, which is a really good baseline so that we can see whether any initiatives are very brought in in the future to reduce the problem are actually working or not. You know? so, yeah. so it's great you know, to be able to get right down to the, uh, get a very clear picture of that, uh, what levels of pollution there are. And uh, the focus has also been particularly on plastic. So 74% of items collected off the 54,000 items categorised has been plastic. Uh, and a big one though is cigarette butts, uh, which as people may know, uh, they have plasticised cellulose in their filters. Yeah, and of course um, adding to the problem with plastic is now um, the disposable face masks which are starting to pop up in the litter stream. Um, I saw a report this morning from the BBC about a bird that was washed up dead and had a disposable face mask or a mask entangled around its legs. So, yeah, I guess we can just continue to push for that and obviously just try and uh, encourage people to do the right thing if they're going to wear. If you're going to wear a plastic face mask, please make sure it goes into the bin. Yeah, absolutely. So, there's, you know, obviously we need behaviour change. We need the right infrastructure. And we need enforcement as well. You know, so there's a few different overall areas that need to be addressed. Uh, but certainly waste management and recycling uh, product stewardship, all of those topics sort of come to bear to ultimately uh, achieving a solution. So, uh, now, uh, but, yeah. I mean, I'll go, Kate. I was just going to ask, so you've obviously got, as you say, like over 50,000 sort of data points there, and a lot of these changes are made sort of quite slowly, um, you know, with the cotton bud one that's sort of going through at the moment, plastic straws. Of those items, you know, where's, what's high on your target list to try and get people to stop using because you're seeing it out there so much? Uh, well, obviously the cigarette butts are the, are the biggest one, but one of the um, key things that's come across, though, Kate, is that because we've audited the paved areas as well as the, the garden and uh, lawn areas, we've found that two-thirds of what's been collected, including a lot of microplastics, are coming from the nature strips. You know, so... There's a little bit of behaviour change there. Where, and we've had uh, some really good Zoom meetings with uh, uh, scouts talking to local mayors about the findings in their local area. And, and uh, this has been across the board. All areas, there's been uh, considerably more uh, items found within the, in the lawn or mulch areas. Uh, so that sort of has, goes to uh, their practices in, in when it comes to mowing the lawn. Make sure you pick up that bit of polystyrene or, or, you, or the plastic source uh, container and that sort of stuff before you actually mow because you're only shredding and stuff and, and turning, increasing the problem. Um, Neil, we might have to leave it there because we need to get to our chat with Sean Doherty. Um, anything you want to give a plug to in the weeks ahead, um, particularly uh, we've got Radiothon coming up at the end of August. We'll, we'll catch you before then. Uh, but any, anything that you're involved in that you want to draw to our listeners' attention? Uh, not, not at this stage, Bron. Uh, I do want to uh, let people know that there is a, the Litter Watch database has been uh, launched uh, just yesterday, I believe, by the state government. So that's something that, uh, that people are interested in, the topic of litter. That would be something you know, can check out just if you Google Litter Watch. Awesome. 
Thanks so much, Neil. Take care and we'll catch up Thank with you, you in a few weeks' time and I'll make sure I write down the right phone number this time. Good on you, brother. Okay, thanks. See you later. Bye for now. Neil Blake there, uh, our baykeeper, working hard as always. And uh, we have a guest, I'm hoping, lined up, but I don't know which one it is because we haven't been able to get um, Sean to answer his phone or his Skype. Oh, we do. Have we got Sean? Yes, we do. It's Mel. (laughs) Hey, are you still there, Kate? I am still here. I'm just sitting at home reveling in this almost. It's... um... (laughs) You're doing a good impersonation of a duck there, Brian. Keeping it cool on the surface, I know what's going on underneath. Excellent. <laughs> hey, uh, this is really exciting. And um, while we uh, while we speak with Mel Wells, which I'm actually really, really excited about, and great we can get Mel on first. Um, if anyone knows Sean Doherty, and you happen to know where the, where he is, maybe he's gone for a surf because he does live down by the ocean and maybe it was just too tempting to get on a wave this morning. Um, go and give him a nudge. Let him know that we're expecting to talk to him here at Triple R. All right, I'm going to do my intro for Mel um, because uh, this is pretty exciting. Exciting. We were speaking earlier about us all being in lockdown at the moment. The thought of six weeks of home-based living is understandably challenging. Um, although perhaps not to Mel Wells, she's just spent 22 months on Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctic over three consecutive winters with not even the comfort of a takeaway coffee. Uh, she has spent 10 years researching seabirds. That's a long time to be researching seabirds and is now a PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania. This coming Tuesday, she's going to be presenting the Speaker's Tent, which is a session through Coast Care Victoria, Parks Victoria's Winter by the Sea program. And uh, she'll also be talking about Macquarie Island's birds, her research and what it was like to do isolation in the extreme. It's with great pleasure now. We welcome Mel Wells. Good morning, Mel, and welcome to Triple R. Welcome to Radio Marinara. G'day, Ron. How are you going? Hey, I'm fine. And thanks so much for being flexible because we weren't expecting to have you on for another 10 minutes or so. So uh, awesome that we can catch up with you there. Let's start with with, uh, how long you were on Macquarie Island. 22 months. It's a long time to be in a location as remote as Macquarie Island. Can you talk us through how you ended up going there? Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, it wasn't 22 months straight, so it wasn't as extreme as that sounds, but I um, I got a volunteer um, research assistant position with the Tassie State Government 2017-18, so I was there for 12 months straight, um, and then I came back to Victoria for the winter, and then I went back down there for the summer, and then I came back again to Victoria for the winter, and then I've just been back for the summer um, as a wildlife ranger for the Parks and Wildlife Service down there. So I've basically been in a perpetual winter since 2017, um, which is a bit sad, <laughs> but um, I didn't have that straight period. So I only had the one winter and now I've had three summer seasons down there. It's still a long time though and... Um you know, quite a number of years ago, I spent two weeks on Kangaroo Island down at the, the bottom end, down at Cape Ganthium, helping a friend, a fellow um, postgrad colleague uh, who was setting up an entire summer of research for herself. And at two weeks in a really remote location is a long time. Um, 22 months, I just can't get my head around that. Is it just adjusting to a different way of living, do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> Yeah, so we have, on on Massa, we've got, like, the main sort of research station base that that the population over winter is about maybe 14 to 17 people. Um, 
and that's where sort of most of the population um, stay. Um, and then there's a series of sort of field huts around the island, and, and my job was field-based, so that was even more sort of a little bit more um, remote. So, you know, on the station we, we, we have satellite um, internet and we have phone connection to the rest of the world. So, And, you know, particularly these days that everything is, you know, communicated over the internet, um, it's it's quite easy to stay in touch with people, but but in the field huts it's a little bit more remote. And um, I mean, I love it. You know, it's it's so romantic. Like, um, yeah, one of the field huts in the very south of the island, um, just about thirty eight kilometres away from the main base. Um, so, you know, you just sort of have radio contact with um, like a VHF radio with the base, and that's it. And it's it's incredible, sort of sitting on top of the peaks and just thinking, wow, like, there's no one, um, you know, 40 kilometres away, there's 15 other people, and then there's nobody extra, you know, 1,500 kilometres, that's sort of how far away it is from from Hobart. So um, it's it's quite humbling, actually, just sort of being tiny little speck in the middle of the Southern Ocean. So yeah. Nice. Uh, Mel, it's Kate here. How are you doing? I'm good, Kate. How are you? Very well. Look, I want you, you talk about those little field huts and I've seen you present before and I've seen some photos of these things and I would like for you to tell people what is the view like from these huts and you know, what have you got out the front door? Yeah, well, I mean, it's pretty spectacular. So, I mean, uh, Macquarie Island is a nature reserve for, for a lot of reasons um, and one of them is it's for the wildlife. So, you know, it's just this tiny little speck of land um, amongst the Southern Ocean and, and there's a few of these little sub-Antarctic islands and, I, and I'll sort of briefly touch on it um, my, my talk on Tuesday but these little islands are just refuges for, you know, millions and millions of seabirds and, um, and mammals like seals um, and so we've got uh, four different species of penguins there, four different species of albatross, giant petrels, um, you know, great big elephant seals and sub-Antarctic and Antarctic fur seals. And so the coastline particularly, which is where most of the field huts are situated, um, are just littered with animals in the summertime, in the winter. Um, everything sort of leaves um, and it's very quiet and lonely in the wintertime. Not much hangs around. Um, but in summer, it's, yeah, you know, forget about walking along the coast, really. It's sort of, you have to kind of push up to, to, to the hills and stay up on the plateau because it's just, um, it's very crowded with, with penguins and seals and, and everything. <laughs> yeah. Mel, can you describe the station where you were based? Um, we're talking about the remoteness of it, but, but can, mm. can you talk us through the research station, what it's like down there? Yeah, well, um, I mean, it's an exciting time for Macro at the moment because it's sort of um, it's starting to get a, a rebuild of the station. The station was built in 1978, so it's super old, um, and it's it's really beautiful. Actually, it has a lot of character. It's kind of has this kind of old western kind of theme to it, like not not intended, but it's just kind of the the, the vibe from being so weathered over the years. But um, the station is um, on this very, very um, narrow strip of, of land uh, that's, that's at sea surface temperature. It's, it's called the Isthmus, um, and that's where the station is. And just a series of different buildings, um, and it's sort of centred around this, this great big um, Inari satellite dome. So Inari stands for Australian National Antarctic Expeditions. Inari, yeah, research expeditions. <laughs> um, and and all of them, uh, all of the stations have this, this huge satellite that's, that's covered in this dome um, 
and that's basically our connection to the rest of the world. So um, the station also is right up in the north, um, this, this place called Wireless Hill, which is where um, Douglas Mawson first, he established the first radio link between um, Antarctica and, and the rest of the world. So he used, he put his, um, the radio mast up there, which, which, you know, helped establish that link. So, um, you know, the island itself is is um, just covered in, in cultural heritage of our sort of Antarctic expeditions, which is really cool. Um, and the other thing as well, it's really, really prolific in parts of the island, especially in the north where, where the station is, is these uh, old digesters um, from the way the sealing days from the sealers um, in the 1800s. So because it's, it's heritage listed, um, all of that stuff, it just lays in situ, um, and it's quite haunting, actually, because some of them are right in the middle of these great big king, king penguin colonies, um, and there's just these, you know, huge sort of digesters that they used to just throw the penguins in, um, and at one stage they were they were able to process, like, up to 2,000 penguins at a time, so um, the island is, is, uh, and the island's wildlife has definitely um, bounced back since, since those days. They sort of they wiped out all of the fur seals and... They, you know, had a huge decimation in, in a lot of the penguins, but um, it's pretty cool seeing these things sort of just as, as they are. It's very haunting. There's been so much attention on Antarctica and it's obviously sort of become the the, uh, the destination for people wanting to go down there and, and see what it's like. Do you feel like Macquarie Island's kind of the, the quiet sleeper that is is probably more spectacular? Well, I don't know if you could say that, but it's, it's you know, it's spectacular from what you're telling me and from the images that I've seen. Is it sort yeah. of the, the quiet one that's sitting off to the side that people are sort of not really thinking about because they're so focused on getting to Antarctica? Yeah, I mean that's a good that's a good question. There, I mean, there is we we have tourists uh, that do visit the island in the summer. Um, we had like I think we had twelve tourist ships last season, um, and actually the, the tourist ships is what pays um, our, the rangers' wages, so that's that's quite nice. <laughs> um, but uh, so so we do have a lot of people come. But yeah, I guess people can get sort of caught up on on the the romanticness of Antarctica and you know so remote and the big white continent, which. Um, don't get me wrong, it's amazing. I was I was lucky enough to go uh, via Antarctica to Macquarie Island this summer, so it was a bit of a detour, um, and I'd never been there before, and it was just the most amazing experience. But, um, yeah, certainly, as, as you say, Maco is... Um, it's been described before as uh, the Galapagos of the Southern Ocean, um, just in terms of that sort of biodiversity hotspot and just this mecca for wildlife, and it, and it is. It's just, like... It's just teeming with life, and it's been about 10 years since um, the Macquarie Island Pest Eradication Project, which eradicated all the rabbits and rodents, um, and the cats were already gone by then, but um, rodents and rabbits um, have been gone for like 10 years now, and the island is just amazing in terms of its recovery. It's just, it's it's incredible to follow, and, and we get tourists that have been like, they went in the 80s and they went in the 90s and they've come back now that are also like, you know, following the recovery of the island, which is really special. So, um, I mean, I would, I would, if, if you're looking at, if you're looking at travelling to, to some of these remote places, I would definitely consider um, Macquarie Island and also the New Zealand subantarctic islands, which which get forgotten about as well. But there's there's um, about four, four or five subantarctic islands that, that belong to New Zealand that are sort of north of Macquarie Island. Um, that are just as spectacular. 
Let's have a quick look at your PhD, Mel, because you'll be speaking about this um, on Tuesday at, at the Speaker's Tent. What did you go to Macquarie Island to study uh, and, and what have you found down there? So I'm, I'm not actually doing uh, my PhD uh, on anything from Macquarie Island. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I did, I mean, I did, I, I, it, it sort of uh, helped inspire me and, and create my ideas, but I'm actually probably going to be having a bit more of a bass straight focus for okay. my PhD, which is cool. But, but in short, I'm going to be sort of investigating um, disease threats to seabirds, which I, I did help with a little bit of work on Macquarie Island doing. I helped with a wildlife sec who was doing a bit of an investigation into that, which kind of planted that seed for me and, um, and sparked my interest in that world. And then I'm hoping to apply it to some of our, our Bass Strait marine predators. Are you going to be heading back to Macquarie Island anytime soon, or are you now kind of uh, you know, neck deep in your PhD work. Yeah, no, I um, I won't be, unfortunately. It was very sad, but um, I need to, I mean, I've spent, you know, the most part of the last three years there and it's very special, but I, I mean, A, I need to have a summer <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I think I need to find somewhere to live and get a routine, you know, <laughs> so... Yeah. Now let's have a super quick look at um, at this Tuesday session that you'll be presenting as part of. Yeah. Uh, so Australia's subantarctic wildlife um, mentioned earlier that anyone can take part in this. Um, you actually need to apply, but we'll put the links to that on our Facebook page. Actually, we already have. Um, what, what will you be covering on Tuesday? So my general. I mean, I'm going to keep it pretty general. It's only half an hour, and uh, many people know that I can just keep keep talking so I'm going to try and keep in the half an hour but basically the idea is that I just want to showcase some of Australia's um, marine wildlife that a lot of people probably don't even know that uh, that these creatures are breeding within our territory um, let alone will potentially be you know lucky enough to ever see them um, so I'm trying to sort of connect uh, people to, to this amazing wildlife that, that, that is Australian, it's part of Australia. So um, that, that's the general idea. So I'll teach you some cool things about albatross and seals and talk about um, Australia's subantarctic territories and, and, and how the creatures are doing there. So showing lots of photos, maybe some videos, we'll see how it works. But that's, that's kind of my general my general aim. Fantastic. So this is uh, Winter by the Sea, the Speaker's Tent, this coming Tuesday, uh, 28th of July from 4.30 till 5.15, presented by Mel Wells, Australia's Subantarctic Wildlife. This one's a Microsoft Teams event, so you'll need to actually register. The best way to do that is just to follow the links that we've put on our Facebook page through Coast Care Victoria's Winter by the Sea, and you'll get all the instructions there on what to do. Mel, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great speaking with you. Thanks again for being so flexible and going a bit early no, for no us. And um, let's get you back on to talk about your PhD work because I really want to talk more about this. Uh, it's a fascinating subject area and uh, let's do that in the future. Yeah, no, that sounds good. Super, super topical at the moment. So, um, it is. That sounds great. Thanks, awesome. Okay, thanks. Bye for now. Mel, Mel, Mel Wells there. She's a um, PhD candidate at the University of Tasmania. We're talking to her in uh, in Hobart, I think. Um, it's 9.53. You're listening to Radio Marinara here at 3 R. We're still not able to get on to Sean Doherty. Uh, we're trying Skype and mobile. But what we're going to do instead, Kate, have we still got you with us? Kate, have we still got you with us? And we're just going to try and get Kate. What we're going to <laughs> no, we're going to play some more Marconi. <laughs> gotcha there. <laughs> it's all going on today, Kate. 
Oh, look, it's fine. It's the way it is sometimes. Yeah. Hey, um, I've got to look. What I'm I'm going to do a super quick book review of this book, and we will get Sean on at some point in the near future to talk about his role with Surfrider because that was one of the things I wanted to talk about. He's recently taken over as president of Surfrider Foundation Australia, um, and this new book called Golden Days. Uh, Golden Days: The Best Years of Australian Surfing. It, it's actually a hundred years history of Australian surfers, um, most of whom are featured in Surfing Australia's Hall of Fame. And they range from 1915, which profiles a surfer called uh, Isabel Leatham. I don't know, have you ever heard of her, Kate? I hadn't. Not off the top of my head. No, No. so, so she was actually the daughter of one of the original suffragettes in Sydney who pushed hard for women's rights. And uh, ended up sort of taking a bit of a shine to surfing. And can you imagine being, what it was like being a woman in 1915 and what, you know, the expectations of her would have been like? And um, she uh, was she lived in Freshwater Beach, which was uh, a, a, an area near Sydney. And at the time that um, uh, there was an exhibition surfing event uh, from um, Duke Kahana Moku uh, from um, Hawaii who came over and uh, did a demonstration and then uh, asked for um, someone, he wanted a female volunteer to go tandem surfing with him. And so uh, Isabel was pushed forward because she, you know, was well known to be a bit of a water nymph. And from there she went on to do all kinds of different um, amazing work pioneering not only surfing but also a whole bunch of things, you know, contributing to to uh, to women's rights and, uh, and at a time when the white Australia policy was kind of really um, strong, she, you know, to have to have a woman on a surfboard surfing with a Polynesian man was kind of seen as pretty groundbreaking as well. So this is where it kicks off this book, Golden Days, and then it follows through from 1915, as I mentioned, there's uh, at least one or two surfers mentioned every decade. And then, of course, it gets into the 60s and 70s where the mo- momentum really builds and takes off. There's some names in there which many people listen Listening to this program will be familiar with like Wayne Lynch, um, uh, Midget Farrelly, um, Claw uh, Warbrick, uh, Bob McTavish, um, and then sort of follows all the way through to the current day and finishes off with a profile um, of a uh, of current surfer Tyler Wright. So look, it's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. That's a very quick snapshot of it. Costs forty five dollars. Uh, as a hard copy and um, it's just beautiful and it's the sort of book that you can pick up because there are 44 chapters featuring different surfers you can just flick to any page really and read four or five pages about a particular surfer at a point in time and read about their contribution to Australian surfing over the last hundred years. So can I ask you the question I wanted to ask Sean Brown? Go for it (laughs) I'll have a crack at answering it. Well, you read it. So is there a particular time and sort of place through reading the book that you were like, geez, it would have been great to be a surfer or or around then? Yeah. Do you know what? All of them. For different reasons. <laughs> Good answer. I kind of, I kind of read about, you know, I still, I'm fixated on Isabel Latham and what she did, and the fact that, you know, when the when Duke came here, there there wasn't a surfboard for him to surf on, and they just had to go down a tree and cut down a tree and make one, and he kind of, you know, really quickly put this thing together and then just got it out. Uh, on the water and um, was offered a tow out to the, you know, the 
the outer breakers so he could do his demonstration surfing and he's he, he just laughed at them and you know got on this board and paddled out and you know people were just shocked at what people were able to do i think being there at that time and experiencing that shock factor would have been pretty amazing um, but look, they, it's it's interesting as you go through the book and read through the different decades. You just you get that real feel for you know if you can sort of picture stereotypical '60s surf culture and then '70s surf culture and '80s surf culture, and it all sort of comes out in this book. So um, I loved it. I haven't read it cover to cover. Um, I have read a lot of it in bits and pieces and enough to sort of get that flavour of it. And that's the best thing about it, you know. Sometimes if you see a book which is, I'm just looking at it now, it's about 350 pages, so it's quite big. But to be able to pick it up and just read four or five pages while you're having your, you know, your morning tea, um, sometimes those books are the best ones, I reckon, because you can just read it in bits and pieces. Yeah, and when you mentioned the name that sort of did spark a bell and I actually lived at Freshwater for quite a few years when I was in Sydney and if you go down to the Freshwater Beach Surf Lifesaving Club so Freshwater is actually just north of Manly so you've sort of got Manly Beach it runs along and then if you go over that headland you've got Freshwater Beach it's kind of a little beach tucked in it's beautiful but if you go to the surf club the original surfboard is still there so that's actually part of the history of the club so you can actually go and visit it yeah fantastic Hey, look, yeah, we're, so we're, it was good to hear it's all tied back in. Yep. Well, we'll get Sean on the program to talk about it in more detail and also the research that he put into writing this book. Hey, it's coming up to 10 o'clock. Um, Radiotherapy is standing by. They've got a massive show for you today with Doolittle, Panel Beater and uh, various other folks who will be joining them uh, remotely. Um, thanks so much to Mel Wells today. Thanks to you, uh, Cade, very much. Thanks to Neil Blake and thanks to Kent who has just been – he's been the duck <laughs> – <laughs> on the surface with his legs paddling furiously and he's going to be uh, uh, his alter ego panel beater in the next hour. On next week's program, um, Ant will be in the house, you'll be in the house, I'll be in my house um, broadcasting remotely and uh, we'll have Dallas De Silva uh, on talking about what VFA have been doing with their spider crab satellite tagging which is underway this week. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.